So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn just to the Gospel of Luke. Now, I'm going to be in the ninth chapter today, ninth chapter, and as we said last week, we want to encourage you over the next couple of months to really meditate and ponder this incredible uh, little gospel here that the Dr. Luke penned, and as we established last week, he wrote to his buddy Theophilus, but listen to what he says, again in verse 3 and 4, as Trevor broke it down. He said, it seemed fitting for me, Luke, one of the guys who has been around Jesus during his earthly ministry, he said, it seemed fitting for me, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order so that you, listen, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. So as we get in again to the Gospel of Luke, it is so that we can know the exact truths in regards to who Jesus Christ really is, about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. This Gospel is all about Jesus. And so just like John would write at the end of John in his epistle writing, these things have been written so that you will know that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in him, you shall have life in his name. Luke starts his gospel by saying, I want you to know the exact truth about Jesus and who he is. And so that's what this gospel is about. Now, Luke chapter 9 is going to be interesting to dive into today. Luke chapter 9 is going to be very interesting, so I would invite you to work your way there. But if I had to title our talk today, I would title it this. Who is willing? Who is willing? Now, John Wooden was the coach of UCLA basketball for many years. John Wooden went many years without even losing a game. He had the greats like Lou Alcindor, who later became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Bill Walton and other greats. But Bill Walton was... One of the, the freakiest dudes, probably, that John Wood never coached, right? Uh, Bill Walton, when he was there, he was trying to get legal, uh, pot legalized where he could just get high and go out and play. Well, read his story. Very interesting, diverse personalities that John Wooden coached. But they asked Coach Wooden one day, they said, what is the key of having a great team? What is the key of building a great team? And listen to what he said. He said, number one, you've got to get your players in the right condition. Number two, you've got to teach them the fundamentals of the game. And number three, you've got to get them to learn to play together. Get them in the right condition, teach them the fundamentals of the game, but get them to learn to play together. I started thinking, what is the key to building a healthy church? I'm like, you nailed it, coach. You've got to get your players in the right condition. They've got to get saved. They've got to repent. They've got to really come to know who Jesus is. You've got to teach them the fundamentals, which means people have got to be discipled. Howard Hendricks said, most Christians are like bad film. They're overexposed but underdeveloped. And that's not what we want. We want to see people discipled, and that's a large thrust of the Gospel of Luke. And then he said, you've got to get them to work together. 
You've got to get them to play together. And I'm like, that's the church. You've got to get them involved in fellowship. You've got to get people involved in smaller groups. We talk about this so often. I met with a person this week, and they're like, we want to do the home church thing. And I'm like, well, cool. And, and this person was telling me that they want to get back to an Acts 2 model of church ministry. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Well, they met in small groups, and they were breaking bread, and they prayed together. And I said, we have that already. You've just ignored participating in it already for the last four and a half years since I've been here. You've not participated in it. So how are you going to go start what you've refused to participate in? Come on. It is a trip when you get people together. One of the most difficult challenges as a coach and as a leader is to get the team to play together. And when you do that, you have a chance of succeeding. I like what John Ortberg said. John Ortberg is one of my favorite writers, but he said this. He said, the decision to grow always involves a choice between risk and comfort. This means that to be a disciple of Jesus, you must renounce comfort as your ultimate value. Did, did you hear that? Ortberg has been pastoring for years, and Ortberg says, hey, the key is that you've got to renounce comfort as your ultimate value. And for some of us, risk is one of the dirtiest little four-letter words you'll ever hear. Risk? You mean I've got to leave what I know to maybe embrace what I've never experienced? You mean I may have to get out of my comfort zone? Yeah. So, so here, here's a fundamental thought, and we're going to roll it. Jesus, he calls us to train an army, not just attract an audience. When you study the writings of Matthew all the way through Revelation, when you study it, Jesus was about building an army. Every time there was a large crowd that showed up, he had a way of thinning them out. I mean, right? You, go, you, go, you look at Jesus, and the more that came, the almost the more difficult his teaching was. And he was constantly thinning out who was hanging around them, him to get them to understand what the true cost of following him was all about. It's absolutely fascinating. So here's the reality. Here's the reality. Many people go to church. Many people pray. Many people wear cute little crosses around their neck. Some people read the Bible occasionally, and many people claim to be disciples of Jesus. But here's the thing but the way they live is a contradiction to what they say they believe. Craig Groeschel wrote a book called The Christian. Atheist. And his whole premise really is how can we say that we're walking in the dust of the rabbi, but yet our behavior be a total contradiction of who we read Jesus to be? Hmm. We live in an interesting society. 
So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does my life say about my faith? If people did a real living autopsy on me 24-7, what does my life say about my true faith? Do I really allow Christ to live in and through me? Is it a consistent declaration of the deity of him? Or am I constantly in contradiction? Because following Jesus and being a disciple implies a cost. Following Jesus is about Jesus and not about us. I wrote this out. A me-centered Christianity is what we find so often in the Bible belt, which is the bondage belt, which is the overexposed but underdeveloped belt. Listen to this. A me-centered Christianity will say things like this. Ever since I've placed my faith in Jesus, Jesus has made me a better person. Me. Jesus gives my life meaning and purpose. My. Jesus set me free from my addictions and bondage. Me. Jesus came really for me, right? I read where he was giving out all this cool stuff. And even Jesus said, ask and seek and knock. So it's all about me, really, right? And how we land there and how we conclude that this is really the gospel according to Jesus is crazy. A true disciple is a person who loves, worships, follows, obeys, submits his life in devotion to Jesus Christ and his agenda. A true disciple is a person who loves, worships, obeys, surrenders and submits his life in devotion to Jesus and his agenda. A true disciple. Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples. Jesus came on the scene teaching this. For a disciple, Jesus Christ is Lord, ruler, master, authority. Rachel was sharing with us yesterday that this person that she's attended church with that supposedly is involved in leadership at another church, he posts on his Facebook wall that he's had enough and he's going to commit suicide. And I'm reading this going, this guy's in church, he's in church leadership, somebody's applauded him, but he's basically saying, I've already tried it before and I think... I'm at the end, I'm going to try it again. I read that and I thought, all you're declaring is who your authority is. What you said in your entire rant was, I am my authority. My life belongs to me. My life, I can do whatever I want to. But a disciple says, life is a gift. It belongs to you. It doesn't belong to me. I'm here because you made me. You redeemed me. The whole journey of why we exist is all about him. And if he's the authority, he calls the shots. We have to move away from this me-centered, egocentric, philosophical approach that life is about us. When Jesus called people, he called them to walk in the dust of who he was. He called them to fully identify with him. Is that the gospel according to Jesus? Yes. So Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 starts where Jesus has got his 12. 
And he entrusts these guys with this power and authority. And he tells them to go out into the villages and they go. And as they go, they're casting out demons and they're seeing diseases healed. This all cool stuff is going on, right? They're proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord. All of a sudden, they come back and they're like, dude, this is happening. Matthew 10 captures it a little bit as well. You can read it. But they're like, man, look at how cool this hanging with Jesus and assignment with Jesus is. All of a sudden, all these people start gathering, and they're hanging with them. And before you know it, Jesus takes this boy's sack lunch, and he feeds 5,000 people. All of this is happening right in Luke 9. Man, we just had the, the most incredible picnic and festival we've ever had in our life. We, we started the day by going out, and we were casting out demons, and we were seeing people healed. Man, that was tight. Then... We, we had all these people, and he told them to sit down and hush, and then he fed all these people from just a few loaves and fish. That was so awesome. Then it says that Jesus slipped away. This is all in one day. This would be a pretty trippy day, would it not? I mean, you're walking through the streets of Loganville, and you see a person demon-possessed, and you're like, in the name of Jesus, and the person just starts to clean up their act. I mean, you see people in wheelchairs and who are broken down, and you just look at them and say, in the name of Jesus, arise and walk, and all this stuff is happening. Then you feed all these people. So Jesus slips away, and he's praying. Pick it up in Luke 9, verse 18. While Jesus was alone praying, he came to his disciples, and he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say you're Elijah, and others think you're John the Baptist or one of the great prophets, man. He said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you're Yeshua HaMashiach. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the son of the living God. I know who you are. Now, now listen, we've stopped there at times. You're the Christ. Matthew says, Jesus looks and says, Peter, upon that bolder statement that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That statement is what's going to bring people into relationship with me, that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus pauses and looks and says, guys, I must suffer terrible things. I will be rejected. I will be killed. I will be murdered. I will later rise on the third day. Check the two implied questions out that are in the text. Who am I? Who, who, who am I? That is, that is a personal question that he really asked each and every one of us. Who, who do you say that I am, Tim? Barb, Trevor, Nick, my, my, Mike, who am I? How you answer that question is crucial in your journey. It doesn't define his identity, but how you define that is crucial to your own personal identity of how you live life. But the second question really to me is just as strong. And the second question is, what will you do? with who I am. And it's implied in verse 21, 
What are you going to do with who I am? Can you handle, Tim, the reality of what's about to happen to me? Now, now, if you're following me because you want an earthly king and you like the tricks and the treats and if you like feeding the 5,000 and if you like casting out demons, if you like all this charisma stuff and that's the only reason you're a part of it, heads up, heads up, can you handle really who I am? Does the reality of me being murdered frighten you? Does it frighten you that I'm going to be murdered here soon and all of you pretty much are going to flee the scene? You're going to leave me? Let me ask you this. You know what's going to happen to me is going to happen to you. Do what? There's 12, one hangs himself, one dies of an old age man, John. 10 of the 11 that were remaining were martyred for their faith. Jesus is calling people to a radical allegiance and he says, can you handle what's going to happen to me? But what's going to happen to me is going to happen to you. Betrayal, rejection potentially becoming a martyr. And it's almost like he implies, if you want to run, now's a good time to do it. Now, now, now again, as I study the text, I, I've got to tell you, this is one of the most confrontational texts in my own journey. Because as a young man who had repented and responded because I didn't want to go to hell and I wanted to go to heaven. And I thought, man, I'm going to come to know Jesus. And then I start to jog through and pause and crawl through some of these tougher passages. Jesus was basically saying, I didn't come to take part. I came to take over. And if you're going to come and go with me, it's going to cost you everything. But here's a fundamental kind of question as I clawed through this, and I have to ask myself, how many churches in America today would have Jesus as a guest speaker to proclaim his teachings in their churches? But we seem that we've bought into America to a feel-good gospel, have we not? We seem that we, we've been okay with this me-centered Christianity being promoted to us. And I look at it and I'm like, this is heavy. This tells me that I have to go all in. This doesn't tell me that I get to keep me. I'm like, how many churches really would say, now our guest speaker today is Jesus and he's going to tell you that he's about to have his lunch handed to you. He's going to be murdered, brutally shredded on a cross. And he's going to tell you, if you really want to identify and hang with him, you've got to be willing for the same to happen to you. Man, I'm telling you right now. I think that's the reason you see Jesus repeatedly thinning the crowds. What's going to make you quit? Where's your breaking point? Where do you throw the towel in? 
When did you not pick up the ball and bat and go back and play again the next day? Do you have the ability to stay and stick and, 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 and see it out? Peter, you're the Christ. Peter, this dude is crazy. He's a 22-year-old boy when all this is going down. He preaches at Pentecost, and all these people get saved. Peter, how did you preach at Pentecost? I'm the same dude that was cutting off soldiers' ears when they came to get him. I'm the same dude that said I wouldn't deny him, and I did. I, I, I believe he is who he is, and dying doesn't scare me. You read this book and it's crazy. It's amazing. Luke 9, 23. This is all in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, and it means come and live the way I live. It means come and identify and embrace my life. If anyone would come after me, anyone, 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 the Holy Spirit has to convict our hearts. We understand that. But Jesus is saying, if anyone... You said you're going to die. We are going to probably have to ultimately die. Anyone, he must deny himself. Not that. Take up his cross daily. Follow me. Whoever, anyone, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever's willing to lose his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses and forfeits his soul? This is all in John 9. This is crazy, right? You guys are an attentive group in here today. But I'm glad. Because the soberness of being a disciple of our king should cause us To consider the weightiness of what he asked of us. I I, I never read where he says every head bowed, every eye closed, walking aisle, get in a tank of water and hang with me for 90 minutes a week. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said, deny self and die. When you study it, a condemned criminal in that day was forced to carry one of the beams, one of the bars of their cross to the place of execution. And so when they picked it up, they was not looking back. They were not going back. They were not turning back. They were on a one-way journey. The implied, the the implied, Jesus would even say later in Luke 9, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus would say, no man after putting his hands to the plowing, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. All of this is in Luke 9. It was a one-way journey. Our own cross represents anything in our lives that hinder Christ from being central in anything that would disturb that fellowship that he desires to have with us. Anything that I allow to sneak in and start to own throne space of my heart, he goes, stop it. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus says, give me all. I don't want your time or your money or your work. I want all of you. 
Lewis goes on to say, Jesus did not come to torment your soul. He came to kill it. Lewis, I thought you were more Arminian, brother. I thought you were a little lighter. I mean, I like screw tape and I like mere Christianity. And why make statements Jesus is when Jesus calls us to? He said, follow him daily. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily. Follow me confronts Sunday morning Christianity. Following is absolute obedience, motivated by a passionate desire to please the master in him alone. In order to know Jesus and obey Jesus, I have to know what his voice sounds like. I have to spend time with him. I have to be able to pick out who he is and what he says and what doesn't measure up? I mean, the real question is, do I really want to be a disciple of Jesus? Or do I want to buy into cultural Christianity and say, man, just conversion's good enough for me. But I, I never see that being taught in the scripture, so I, I can't land there. And then that confronts me. I wrote this out. When I first came to faith in Jesus, I was taught to live the Christian life. I was taught, hey, now it's time to live the Christian life, Tim, which meant read your Bible, pray, avoid temptation, go on visitation, be a separated Christian, attend every church service. You know, I can be cynical and sarcastic, but trying to live the Christian life can oftentimes hinder you from following Jesus. We, we get so caught up into these rules and these regulations and we've got our card that we punch in and we punch out. Is the Bible important? We were talking the other day, my buddy Luke. We're just talking, you know, in our culture, people will tell you oftentimes, man, I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be right now. I'm struggling through some stuff. And you'll hear people say this. Well, why do you think you're struggling so much, my sister? Well, I just haven't been in the Word. 25% of the world's population can't read. Can they not have an intimate relationship with Yeshua as king? I haven't been in the Word enough. No, I haven't confronted myself and died to self, and I have not allowed the Holy Spirit to have total freedom in me. Is the Word of God important? Absolutely. I love this book. I love the God of this word and I love the word of God. Grass withers, flowers fade. I love it. But just because you're struggling, you go, I just need to read the Bible more. Hold on. When those early disciples were called to follow Jesus, all they had was Genesis through Malachi. None of this Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans, etc., had been written, even canonized at that time. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to surrender, submit, to worship, to adore, to lay my life down, to be infused by the reckoning power of the Holy Spirit that resides within me. It's powerful. A.W. Tozier, another passive Christian of his day said it this way, and that was sarcastic. He said the true follower of Christ will not ask 
if I embrace this truth, what will it cost me? He said a true follower will say, this is truth. God, help me to walk in it no matter what may come my way. And, and, I, and I think oftentimes we get there and go, well, if I sign up to help with this back-to-school event, what exactly do you want me to do? If we ask you to clean toilets or to register or to cut hair or to help park, does it matter? Does it really matter? Does my assignment dictate my obedience? Or does my obedience drive that I'll take any assignment? Come on. If any man would wish to come after me, he's got to deny himself daily. He's got to take up his cross daily. So that's the reason I say we don't wear WWJD bracelets because I don't want to go back and try to serve only a historical Christ even though I glean so much of what would Jesus do. I want to wear a WIJD bracelet and ask the question when I wake up in the morning, what is Jesus doing? I told this one friend the other day who said, I just want to find an Acts 2 church. And I said, they do they don't exist anymore. What do you mean Acts 2 and 4 don't exist? I said, Acts is a history book. Acts is how the manifestation of the Holy Spirit worked. Acts, the principles are good there, but you're wanting to find an Acts 2 church and an Acts 4 church? I said, the only church Jesus is planning today is an Acts 29 church, to which this person responded, I haven't read Acts 29 well, if you pick up the canonized word of God, the book of Acts stops at 28. But what is the Holy Spirit writing today for the church of Jesus Christ? We're wanting to go back and redo what he's already done instead of walking in the freshness of what hasn't yet been. I love the historical Christ. I love the historical documents. But I want to be a part of an Acts 29 movement of radical disciples of Jesus. Whoever wants to save his life, he says in verse 24, will lose it. Whoever loses it, whoever loses it for my sake, whoever loses it for me will save it. I'm telling you, I struggled with that one for a long time. Derek Rico, athletic guy. I was taught to be a winner. All of a sudden, I read, read this from Jesus, and he goes, you got to be willing to be a loser, Lose what? You've got to lose you. You've got to lose self-exaltation. You've got to lose dependence on you. You've got to lose the thrill of what makes you happy. Whoever wants to save his life means whoever wants to continue to preserve and promote self loses. Whoever is willing to abandon your agenda and submit to the lordship and leadership of Jesus wins. Is that not good? I mean... If you will read through Acts, hey, listen, if you will read through Luke chapter 9 all week, don't listen to this sermon again. Don't take my notes. Take a blank journal, your Bible, get on your knees and say, Jesus, what does being a disciple truly mean? 
See how it changes your journey. See how it radically rocks everything about you. Mother Teresa said, you must give God permission to use you without consulting you. (laughs) I was like, wow. She's Catholic. No, she's in love with the Savior. There's no denominational banners swinging at the pearly gates. This girl was crazy about radically serving Jesus. Becoming a disciple of Jesus means he's going to take us to a deeper place. He's going to strip us down. Is there a price to pay? Yeah. Is denying self easy? No. Can you live the Christian life? No. There was only one person that ever lived the Christian life, and he was murdered at the age of 33. Now, through the working of the Holy Spirit living inside of me, and God inside of me, and Christ in me, and Christ being formed, is it possible to go out and live the joyful, exuberant journey with Jesus leading me every day? So, so I have to stop and go, what if I not surrendered? What am I holding on to? What am I still elevating and esteeming above you? Because he said you got to give up everything. Luke 14, 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Anything that he has, anything that he's plugging into to find love, acceptance, worth, and security and significance... What am I plugging into other than Jesus to find those four laws of the heart to be met in? What, what do I need to unplug from and dethrone in my journey? Is everything a lot? Is that still a fight for me? Do you ever regret re- just violently repenting and saying no to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life? No. Was it hard at times? Yeah. Is it still hard at times? Yeah. Is it worth it? Yeah. He could tell me today, give me back my breath. I would love to stand before him just free and pure. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we deal with the stuff around us all the time. And it's like, who's your authority? Who's calling the shots? Whose words carry the heaviest weight? Who am I listening to? Jim Elliott, his great quote, I'll close it this time with it. Jim Elliott was Nate Saint, those missionaries, man, that were down in Ecuador seeking to infiltrate the Aka Indians with the gospel, speared to death. Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what doesn't belong to him and he can't keep to gain what belongs to him. He'll never lose you. We're in good hands today. Let's pray. 